I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Heads up, there are a couple swears in this episode, just in case that affects your listening experience today. Okay. Here's the show. It's the spring of 2020, the early days of the pandemic. People are howling for healthcare workers, watching Tiger King on Netflix. Hi, everybody. My name's Joseph Maldonado, otherwise known as Joe Exotic. But mainly, like, being stuck at home. I realized I had a lot of time on my hands and I had a lot of thoughts. That's where Malin Curry found himself. 20 something years old, back from college living with his parents in North Carolina. And he starts thinking, like, why the hell is my dad out almost every day working on his lawn? You know, nobody's out. There's no reason to want to make your lawn look perfect and, you know, have these, like, latticed, you know, fields and all that stuff. There's no reason for that if nobody's going to be out. But there his dad was, bending over, picking weeds, wearing cargo pants, like an old T-shirt, bucket hat. Jamming out to Motown hits or Crawl by Chris Brown. He loves that song. This wasn't just a lockdown hobby. His dad's always been like this. For them, it wasn't a big thing to, like, get up in the morning on a Saturday and, you know, get in the yard and spend, like, basically your entire day there, really just making sure that the lawn looked as perfect as it could be. I'm Nate Hedgie. This is Outside In. And welcome to part one of our new summer series, Yard Work. We're doing three stories about our relationship with the land that is literally around us. 
And for part one, we are digging into why this country is so obsessed with lawns. Millions of people are just like Malin's dad, spending lots of money and time caring for their grass. Why? How did this love affair begin? I like making it look neat and tidy. How did lawns become a symbol of racism in America? This was something that black Americans were forced to do. And are they fueling a water crisis out west? What is the point of this? This is just stupid and ignorant. Stay tuned. If I asked you before this episode started what the most common plant grown in the U.S. is, what would you have said? Corn? Soybeans? Wheat? You'd be right. But turf grass comes in pretty close. In fact, it's the single largest irrigated crop in this country. We're talking 63,000 square miles of lawn. That's an area bigger than the state of Georgia. It's on baseball fields, in backyards, parks, in front of strip malls. So how do we get here? This idea of a luscious green lawn wasn't invented by turf companies or unoccupied dads. It actually emerged nearly 600 years ago in the imaginations of European artists. At the time, they were painting all sorts of biblical scenes. Jesus dying on the cross, Abraham trying to kill his son, and Adam and Eve hanging out in the Garden of Eden. Now, the Bible never actually gives a detailed description of what the Garden of Eden looks like, so it was up to these artists to essentially make it up. And so, like Bob Ross, they gave it some happy little trees. Add a little bright red to that. <laughs> oh, I like that color. Maybe some goats, some cows, and then a spot for Adam and Eve to chill. Like a little grassy area. A grassy area. A lawn. Yeah, I like it. This medieval art, it was designed to warm up cold castle walls, give something for the lords and ladies to look at. But over the years, these super-rich families wanted more than just paintings and tapestries. They wanted their own real-life gardens of Eden. Lawns got bigger and bigger, became signifiers of extreme wealth, and eventually made it over to America. Thomas Jefferson had one in Monticello. George Washington had one in Mount Vernon. But here's the irony. It wasn't Thomas Jefferson out there trimming his own lawn. You know, a lot of black Americans were forced to be out in the yard and forced to actually do these things that they probably, no, more than likely, 100% did not want to do. So this is Malin Curry again. He's a writer, and because of his dad's obsession with lawns, he wanted to look into this more. This was something that black Americans were forced to do, and then later on, it became something that they choose to do. And it's something that, and more than that, they enjoy doing. At least that was the case with my family and with you know a lot of the, the families that I had sort of grown up around. Malin found that he could trace a line straight from places like Monticello to Levittown. Five years ago, this was a vast checkerboard of potato farms on New York's Long Island. Today, a community of 60,000... Levittown was one of the first modern suburbs built in the United States. 
It was created by the Levitt family a few years after the end of World War II. Why not mass produce the elements that go to make up a house, just as the auto industry does with the parts that go into a new car? Now, up until then, lawns were still mostly for the rich. But one of the founders of Levittown was a garden enthusiast, and he wanted to bring them to the masses. In fact, he once said, quote, A fine lawn makes a frame for a dwelling. It's the first thing a visitor sees, and first impressions are lasting ones. The result was Pleasantville. Leave it to Beaver. Rows and rows of perfect, identical homes complete with perfect, identical lawns. This set into motion an idea that the state of your lawn reflects your family's character. Nice, trim, green grass is basically a sign that means you've got your shit together. A man who loves fine cars will appreciate the superior performance of a Sunbeam mower. He'll appreciate the instant cutting height adjustment. But back then, suburban lawns were also a not-so-subtle marker that this new way of life, with the white picket fence and those green, carefully manicured lawns, was meant for white people. Because many of these brand new subdivisions wouldn't sell to people of color. It was definitely very much sort of this white idea that only white Americans were privy to, really. This form of housing discrimination, it happened all over the country. The federal government refused to insure mortgages in predominantly black urban neighborhoods. At the same time, they helped subsidize the construction of whites-only suburbs. These racist policies echoed for decades. Levittown is still majority white today. But marginalized communities fought back. And after some of these racist housing policies were banned during the civil rights era, more and more middle-class black families began moving into the suburbs. This was right around the time that Malin's dad, Ira Curry, was born. In Detroit, 1971. I grew up in a lower-class neighborhood, and so a lot of people didn't have lawns. We had, like, dirt and patches of grass. (laughs) So that wasn't a big thing uh, in my neighborhood, no. But in the suburbs outside of Detroit, it was. These nicer homes outside of my neighborhood, they had nice lawns, so that's something I wanted. So Ira, he got to work. As a young man, he got a job at a golf course, and he learned the ins and outs of turf grass. Then he went to college, got a good-paying job, and finally bought his first house with a lawn in the suburbs in the year 2000. His life had mirrored what happened with a lot of middle-class black families. I think when black people started to to come up, so to speak, uh, started to uh, have the opportunity to better themselves, to move into uh, neighborhoods where um, they weren't necessarily allowed to move into, I I think that's where it started to say, like, hey, I've got an opportunity to uh, show that uh, I should be respected, that I can take care of uh, a home, I can take care of uh, my yard. And that's what Ira set out to do. Out came the bucket hat, the cargo pants, Throw some Motown on, rev up the lawnmower, and start mowing his masterpiece. Because for him, lawn care is an art form. Just like um, a painter painting a painting, um, he has a vision in his head, he paints the painting, and then um, once he's finished, he's able to look at the painting and say, wow, that, that turned out really, really nice. And we can begin putting in all kinds of beautiful little grassy areas, just Just go all through all your different yellows and your greens. It's up to you. For Malin, his dad's obsession with that yard makes a lot more sense now. Growing up, it wasn't always super clear to me that, you know, there was really a purpose to be out in the lawn. But now I get it. I get why exactly I spent all those Saturdays 
digging up weeds and, you know, cutting the grass really with like fine scissors and all that kind of stuff. Having this lawn is sort of a representation of everything that he has wanted and everything that he has worked for and wanted to have. He, and he now has it, right? And so that's what I think they represent, at least for me and for my family, is progress. So that green lawn out front of so many houses, it's not just a place for the dog to do his business. It's a symbol, a manifestation of the American dream, a symbol forged in power, wealth, and whiteness, but then claimed by more and more people. Thing is, though, we don't see it that way most of the time. I mean, for a lot of us, especially when I was a kid, lawns are just fun. Grass stains on your knees, rolling down big hills, making grass quacks. But let's not forget, it's still a crop. A garden that produces no food, but still demands your love. Constant mowing, fertilizing, and gallons and gallons of water. And there are folks that say the whole shebang is a complete and utter waste. It's an archaic cultural value that we should let go of. That's coming up right after the break. But first, I want to know, where do you stand on lots? Do you love them? Do you hate them? You never had one? Let me know by sending us an email at outsidein at nhpr.org. We love hearing from you, and trust me, we always respond. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, this is Outside In. I'm your host, Nate Hedgie. This summer, I drove through the suburbs of Salt Lake City with Zach Frankel. So this is my house here, this one on the second on the left. Think big beige houses, Mormon churches, and lots of lush green lawns. Except for Zach's. This is a good thing this is radio because there's no way I would let the public come see the state of my property. Zach's yard is so wild, so unruly, and so dry that a couple of years ago, it actually caught fire. Some neighbors were shooting off fireworks for Independence Day, and one landed in his yard. And then it exploded, and it lit this part of our yard on fire. Wow. And we had to quickly uh, run and get the hose and put it out, and um, that's happened twice now. And we've started um, putting flyers out to our neighbors, asking them not to light our yard on fire. But he doesn't do this out of laziness. This is defiance. I don't really want to water the grass. I don't want to mow the grass. I don't really care about the grass. This is my 
laissez-faire water policy, you're welcome to grow here, but the state will give you no assistance. <laughs> Zach is a conservationist who runs a nonprofit called the Utah Rivers Council. And when Ira Curry sees a green lawn, he sees the hard work and the devotion it took to keep it that way. But what Zach sees are thousands and thousands of gallons of water wasted. It's an archaic cultural value that we should let go of. One could argue that big lawns are bad for the environment in lots of different ways. They drastically reduce biodiversity. The grasses themselves are often non-native and invasive, spreading far beyond lawns and pushing out indigenous plants, not to mention all the toxic and deadly pesticides that people use. But out here in the West, one of the biggest issues with lawns is water. This region is in the grips of an epic drought. We're talking the worst one in a thousand years. And cities and towns in Utah are using more water per capita than any other state in the nation. And most of that H2O is being sunk right into lawns, a lot of which never even get stepped on. Zach and I actually spent seven hours, seven hours, driving all around finding examples of these green lawns. There was the strip of green grass outside of a Target. What is the point of this? This is just stupid and ignorant. There was the Arby's where sprinklers were watering concrete. This is just incredibly frustrating. And the granddaddy of them all, a hospital with four or five football fields worth of perfectly manicured deep green grass. This is the king of waste. Who the hell needs five acres of ornamental grass? And where would all of that water have gone? To the Great Salt Lake. The Great Salt Lake is America's largest inland sea. In the middle of the desert, about an hour from Salt Lake City. I drove out there and visited a marina, and this should have been an idyllic scene, right? I mean, kids playing on a boardwalk, couple of seagulls, maybe some sailboats. But instead, the entire marina was dry. There was an orange buoy in the mud, a single abandoned sailboat. The lake bed itself was cracked, white, and squishy. Like if I jumped in there, I think I'd go down to my ankle and, and goop. There was a woman there with her kids. I mean, there's still beauty in it, but it's definitely a, a little bit ominous. It, it makes you feel a little unsettled, I would say. The Great Salt Lake has been shrinking for the past three decades. Right now, it's at its lowest point in recorded history. And a lot of the water that should be going into the lake via rivers and streams is instead getting pumped into crop fields, golf courses, and lawns. And Zach Frankel, the environmentalist, he says if the state doesn't start drastically conserving water... We're going to have a public health crisis and an environmental crisis of disastrous proportions. As the lake dries, it'll destroy an entire ecosystem, starting with sea monkeys, a.k.a. brine shrimp. They're one of the only creatures that can actually survive in the lake because it's so salty, and they're at the center of a multi-billion dollar industry that harvests the shrimp and then sells them as food to fish farms. And speaking of food, 
Brine shrimp are also a critical food source for millions of migrating birds, including this cute little shorebird called the American avocet. Without those shrimp, they'll die. And as for the people that live around the Great Salt Lake, they're already facing worsening dust storms. Just a couple days ago, there was a two-day long dust storm where the winds blew at 40 or 50 miles an hour. The next morning we went out and there was dust caked over everybody's cars that was so thick you had to immediately wipe it off if you wanted to look out your windshield. The desert has always been dusty, but more and more of that dust is now coming off the Great Salt Lake. And it's not just a nuisance. That dust contains high levels of toxic heavy metals like arsenic and mercury. Those compounds get into people's lungs and they're very hard for the body to remove. And some of them can be there for the lifetime of a resident. What happens to you if you get that stuff in your lungs over time? So both of the arsenic and mercury are carcinogens and are cancer-causing substances. Uh, there are a variety of studies that indicates that you know, breathing these compounds can shorten your lifespan. Shorten lifespans, dead or starving birds, a disappearing lake. I mean, are lawns really fueling all this? Zach said they play a big role, but I wanted to look at some numbers. So I found a couple of studies, and they show that lawns, golf courses, gardens, all that outdoor watering in Utah, have lowered the lake's levels by almost a foot, which is actually a lot. But compare that to all the water used in farming and ranching. Those thirsty fields have lowered the lake's levels by about seven feet. And most of those crops, by the way, aren't feeding people. They're feeding cattle. But farmers have been forced in recent years to cut down on water, whereas many cities and towns haven't. And that grass in front of Arby's, well, that isn't feeding anybody. So lawns may not use as much water as farming, but having a green, well-watered yard in a state as dry as Utah it's kind of like driving a Hummer in the middle of a climate crisis. It just doesn't look good. It's a waste of time and energy. It's a waste of money. And it's a waste of the public capital that we spend diverting our rivers and streams. So why do some businesses do it anyways? I tried calling and emailing a spokesperson for that hospital with the four or five football fields worth of green grass. No answer. The mailbox is full and cannot accept any messages at this time. Goodbye. And that Arby's with the sprinklers watering concrete at 10 a.m. in the morning? Tried calling them too, got a hold of a manager, but he wouldn't talk on record and eventually just hung up on me. So I didn't get any answers, but I imagine businesses must feel the same subtle social pressures that regular folks do at home, right? You have a green lawn because it's expected. It shows that you've got your shit together. And this mentality, it's especially acute in Utah. This area was settled particularly by Mormon pioneers. That's Kelly Kopp. She's a turf grass specialist at Utah State University. And the Mormons who settled this area had a religious zeal to make the dry desert bloom. I think they brought with them an aesthetic 
and an idea about their landscapes that was based a little bit more on New England and England and sort of those climates where grasses were, you know, really prevalent and historically grasses, especially in Europe, were were um, for the affluent. Remember that whole lawns are a symbol of wealth and prosperity? Yeah, that came out west. And so there's sort of that cultural thing that's come down through the generations. It's like, well, if I want to have, you know, a a nice looking, appealing um, landscape, it's going to include some grass because historically we couldn't all have that. But hey, now we can. Obviously, Mormons aren't the only ones to bring this aesthetic out west. But it is a style that has stayed in Utah while it's disappearing in other arid towns. And a big reason for that, Kelly says, is that Unlike in other places, the water here is really cheap, so it's easy to waste on a lawn. If gas is five cents a gallon, nobody cares. They're driving all over the place. Gas is well over five dollars a gallon right now, so I think people are like, oh, wait a minute, let me think about this a little bit more. The same would absolutely be true of water. Grass is a social crop. And it's hard to imagine individual action lowering the pressure to keep up with the Joneses. I mean, why should Arby's stop watering their lawn if the McDonald's across the street doesn't have to? But Utah isn't really taking any big steps to curb water use. In Las Vegas, they're literally ripping out turf and banning lawns. Here in Utah, it's mostly up to the whims of certain communities, HOAs, or homeowners. But you can't totally bash the state. I mean, the culture is slowly changing here. The Mormon Church recently told its millions of members in Utah that, yes, the drought is very bad and we should all be cool with brown grass. And some towns are raising the cost of water and even enforcing watering restrictions. If you're hearing all of this and cringing at the idea of getting rid of your own lawn, it doesn't have to be that way. Kelly says there are ways to have a lawn that's also more environmentally responsible. There are low water use grasses, there are native grasses. We can be transitioning away from higher water use grasses. And in fact, this lawn- She's pointing now to her own yard. Which is primarily composed of high water use Kentucky bluegrass is going to be gotten rid of at the end of this growing season in favor of much lower water use grasses. These include Bermuda grass, buffalo grass. There's also this special mixture of grasses from a company out in Oregon that Kelly says can stay green for 10 days after a single light watering. We're talking about a huge reduction in irrigation on that one area. If everybody did that, we'd be getting to our net zero, right? And this is what I would like. I would like a net zero water situation. Let's grow, but let's not increase the amount of water we're using. But to do that, she says the lawns also need to be a lot smaller. The rest of your yard could be filled with veggie gardens, cactus, rocks, native plants, stuff that either produces food or doesn't really need as much water. It's been growing back here. I'm trying to figure out if I want to keep that or not. On the other side, you see the purple flowers over there? That's all chives. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. And Kelly's yard is kind of a model. She lives in a home up in the mountains outside of Salt Lake. There are choke cherries and native aspen trees that quake and shiver in the wind. There's also my husband, uh, he, he likes to think he's a veggie gardener. And, and so he's thrown some vegetables in here as well. So there's that. And then beyond that is... There is a lawn, but it's pretty small. And a couple weeks ago, it had dandelions blooming everywhere. I think they're cute, you know, dandelions, beautiful little yellow flower. 
And you know what? It kind of looks like what those European artists imagined 600 years ago. Like a little Garden of Eden. A little bit of sap green here and there just to give it a little greenish hue. Okay, let's go up in here. Let's make some big decisions in our world. So, do you think you could live without a lawn? Maybe a smaller one? What would your dream yard look like? Send us an email at outsidein at nhpr.org. We love hearing from you, and trust me, we always respond. And next time on our summer mini-series, Yard Work, how do you know if the veggies you grow in your backyard are safe to eat? I'm growing stuff that's in the same soil as all of this coal. Am I poisoning myself and my family? That's up next on Outside In, which, by the way, is a public radio production. We really do rely on listener support, so if you're able, please consider donating to support the show. The link to do that is outsideinradio.org slash donate. Outside In was produced this week by me, Nate Hedgie, edited by Taylor Quimby, with help from Jessica Hunt, Justine Paradise, and Felix Poon. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Very special thanks to Malin Curry, who actually interviewed and recorded his dad for this piece, as well as Sherry Lund, Zach Renstrom, Gary Rath, and Ken Fox. Music in this episode came from Walt Adams, Stuart Zetterberg, OTE, Headlund, Roy Edwin Williams, El Flacco Collective, Pulsed, Jimmy Wallstein, Both Are Infinite, Airy, and Jay Winters. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.